0: So long bye bye bye. You made your walk through this green. You want to make love to the scene. Your European sun is gone. You better sit along long in five spokes Welcome my friends, welcome to another episode of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you as always from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 30th day of August, 2009. I'd like to take a moment to direct my listeners as always to the websites corbettreport.com and al-Qaeda-doesn't-exist.com. I'd also like to take a moment today to thank Zero Point Radio at ZeroPointRadio.com, which has picked up the Corbett Report podcast and is now broadcasting it on their station. If you haven't gone to ZeroPointRadio.com yet, I suggest you do, to check out, of course, not only the Corbett Report podcast, but other great podcasts like James Evan Pilato's MediaMonarchy.com and, of course, Clyde Lewis's Ground Zero Lounge. I'd also like to thank CascadiaPublicRadio.org, which puts together the Corbett Report podcast and other podcasts in a very small file size for easy dial-up download. So for listeners for whom the large file size of the Corbett Report podcast is an issue, please go to CascadiaPublicRadio.org in order to find a smaller version for download. Listeners can also find the Corbett Report podcast via RadioForAll.net as well as many other interesting podcasts and radio programs. And, of course, if there are ever any problems downloading the latest episode of The Corbett Report, please go to archive.org, where you'll find previous episodes, as well as, hopefully, the current episode of The Corbett Report podcast, up on their server for download from them directly. And so far we have episodes 70 through 96 up on archive.org. So, once again, if there's ever a problem downloading please go to thatarchive.org in order to download from them. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's real news. Today's first real news story comes from The Corbett Report, 25th of August 2009. Geithner, auditing the Fed is a line that we don't want to cross. In an interview released today by Digg and the Wall Street Journal, Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner was pressured about the growing popular movement to audit the Fed, spearheaded by Texas Congressman Ron Paul. A visibly uncomfortable Geithner attempts to dismiss the question by stating, I'm sure people understand that you want to keep politics out of monetary policy. When Geithner is again pressed on the issue, he makes the stunning assertion that conducting an audit of the Federal Reserve, something never before done in its 96 year history, is a line that we don't want to cross, proclaiming that such a move would be problematic for the country. Geithner's response that auditing the Fed would give politicians dangerous control over American monetary policy is mistaken at best and a deliberate lie at worst. Allowing the public to know what happened to their 24 trillion dollars in bailout money does not give undue control of monetary policy to the people's elected representatives. Instead, such an audit would finally allow the public to see how their money has been spent in the midst of the largest spending binge in the history of the world's economy. Hardly an unreasonable demand, given the well-documented revolving door between the Treasury and Goldman Sachs the main recipient of bailout funds. Ultimately, the Treasury Secretary is left spewing the absurdity that I think even the sponsor of that bill recognizes how important it is to have the Fed independent of politics, which can only be said to be true insofar as Ron Paul, the sponsor of House Resolution 1207, wants to abolish the Federal Reserve System altogether. Today's second Real News story comes from InsideScience.org, 25th of August, 2009. Study says, world's stocks, controlled by select few. A recent analysis of the 2007 financial markets of 48 countries has revealed that the world's finances are in the hands of just a few mutual funds, banks, and corporations. This is the first clear picture of the global concentration of financial power and points out the worldwide financial system's vulnerability as it stood on the brink of the current economic crisis. A pair of physicists at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich did a physics-based analysis of the world economy as it looked in early 2007. Stefano Battiston and James Glotfelder extracted the information from the tangled yarn that links 24,877 stocks and 106,141 shareholding entities in 48 countries, revealing what they called the backbone of each country's financial market. These backbones represented the owners of 80% of a country's market capital, yet consisted of remarkably few shareholders. You start off with these huge national networks that are really big, quite dense, Glattfelder said. From that, you're able to unveil the important structure in this original big network. You then realize most of the network isn't at all important. The most pared-down backbones exist in Anglo-Saxon countries, including the US, Australia, and the UK. Paradoxically, these same countries are considered by economists to have the most widely held stocks in the world, with ownership of companies tending to be spread out among many investors. But while each American company may link to many owners, Glatfelder and Battiston's analysis found that the owners varied little from stock to stock, meaning that comparatively few hands are holding the reins of the entire market. Today's final Real News story comes from CNET News, August 28, 2009. Bill would give President emergency control of Internet. Internet companies and civil liberties groups were alarmed this spring when a U.S. Senate bill proposed handing the White House the power to disconnect private sector computers from the Internet they're not much happier about a revised version that aides to Senator Jay Rockefeller, a West Virginia Democrat, have spent months drafting behind closed doors. CNET News has obtained a copy of the 55-page draft of S-773, which still appears to permit the president to seize temporary control of private sector networks during a so-called cybersecurity emergency. The new version would allow the President to declare a cybersecurity emergency relating to non-governmental computer networks and do what's necessary to respond to the threat. Other sections of the proposal include a federal certification program for cybersecurity professionals and a requirement that certain computer systems and networks in the private sector be managed by people who have been awarded that license. A Senate source familiar with the bill compared the president's power to take control of portions of the internet to what President Bush did when grounding all aircraft on September 11, 2001. The source said that one primary concern was the electrical grid, and what would happen if it were attacked from a broadband connection. Welcome, my friends, to episode 96 of the Corbett Report, Lisbon Cometh. If you rely on the history books to find out about the genesis of the European Union, you will, as always, be bored to tears by the prosaic and very boring way in which this history is presented. For example, you can go to Europa.eu, the gateway to Europe on the web, And you can find on their history page, under the years 1945 to 1959, the following. A peaceful Europe, the beginnings of cooperation. The European Union is set up with the aim of ending the frequent and bloody wars between neighbors, which culminated in the Second World War. As of 1950, the European coal and steel community begins to unite European countries economically and politically in order to secure lasting peace. The six founders are Belgium, France, Germany, Italy, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands. The 1950s are dominated by a Cold War between East and West. Protests in Hungary against the communist regime are put down by Soviet tanks in 1956, while the following year, 1957, the Soviet Union takes the lead in the space race when it launches the first man-made space satellite, Sputnik 1. Also in 1957... The Treaty of Rome Creates the European Economic Community, or Common Market. Quote. As I say, it's enough to bore you to tears. Of course, that's because history is always much, much more interesting and fascinating than we're allowed to believe by the people who know that controlling our access to the knowledge of what happened in the past is equivalent to controlling the people. So in order to break free of the bonds of that boring and placid history and to show the real roots of the European Union, let's turn to an article which appeared on PrisonPlanet.com May 11, 2009. Top Nazis Planned EU-Style Fourth Reich. Quote, A writer who was collecting material for a fictional book based around the premise that top Nazis, seeking to preserve their power at the end of the Second World War, conspired to create a Fourth Reich under the auspices of the European Union, actually discovered documents proving the plot to be true. In a Daily Mail piece, Adam Labor reveals how he uncovered U.S. military intelligence report EW-PA128 also known as the Red House Report, which details how top Nazis secretly met at the Maison Rouge Hotel in Strasbourg on August 10, 1944, and, knowing Germany was on the brink of military defeat, conspired to create a Fourth Reich, a pan-European economic empire based around a European common market. Top Nazi industrialists were ordered by SS-Obergruppenführer Dr. Scheid to set up front companies abroad and pose as Democrats in order to achieve economic penetration and lay the foundations for the re-emergence of the Nazi party. The Third Reich was defeated militarily, but powerful Nazi-era bankers, industrialists, and civil servants, reborn as Democrats, soon prospered in the new West Germany. There they worked for a new cause— European economic and political integration," writes Labour. "Of course this rather unsavory piece of the EU's history is left out of the official history books, but it does fit together absolutely perfectly with that information which we saw in episode 44 of the Corbett report, Club Bilderberg where we listened to excerpts of a BBC documentary from 2003 on the Bilderberg Group, in which the presenter was given access to secret documents of the Bilderberg Group, which confirmed that in fact the Bilderberg Group had been behind the creation of the EU and the Euro. Now, couple that information with the information that previous Corbett Report guest Tony Gosling, founder of Bilderberg.org, uncovered about the Bilderberg's Nazi roots, and then triple that with the information that came out just this year, in March, in the EU Observer at euobserver.com, in an article titled Juries Out on Future of Europe, EU Doyen says in which EU Commissioner Etienne Davignon blithely admits that, oh, by the way, the Bilderberg Group actually created the euro back in the 1990s. Again, just slipped in in the middle of an otherwise boring news article. But of course, anything that questions the idea that the EU developed just spontaneously as a matter of steel and coal export trading agreements is, of course, slapped with that one-size-fits-all label of conspiracy theory. Unless, of course, the conspirators themselves are I- admitting it, in which case it's just mundane reality to be buried in the middle of a news article. But with all of that as background about the European Union and where it really comes from, I suppose the question that preoccupies us is, where is the European Union going? And for many years now, it's been moving towards consolidating its power and becoming a federal superstate. Of course, the move towards creating a European federal superstate has been preceded by many smaller steps that make such a giant leap possible, like the establishment of the European common market, the establishment of the euro, and then in the early part of this decade, in 2001, it was proposed that the way forward for Europe would be a European constitution complete with flag and anthem, and all the trappings of a federal superstate. Now, the treaty was in fact spearheaded by a European convention chaired by former French president Valéry Giscard d'Estaing, who, by the way, even his Wikipedia entry of all things, blithely admits that yes, he was a regular and prominent attendee of Bilderberg. But in 2001, he started to chair the European Convention, which was looking into creating a constitutional model for the European Union, and by 2004, the Treaty Establishing a Constitution for Europe was signed by 53 senior political representatives from the 25, the then 25 member states of the European Union, on the 29th of October. In January of 2005, the European Parliament issued a non-binding resolution in which Over 500 votes were cast in favor of the new treaty establishing a constitution for Europe. And it seemed at the time that the political momentum and consensus was very much on track for creating a European Union federal superstate. But amazingly enough, the people of Europe, when consulted, issued a resounding no. In fact, a referendum was only granted to the peoples of certain member states of the EU, with many other member states not getting any say whatsoever. But even then, only a few of the countries voted for the constitution, and the French and the Dutch, in quick succession in 2005, voted against the constitution. And of course, without the French and the Dutch, there would be no constitution. So the Constitution was scrapped. Now, of course, this left the people who had been pining for a European federal superstate in order to consolidate power for the banksters and the others who have always had control over the globalization process scrambling to recover the momentum that they thought they had. That, that is, until they actually consulted the people of Europe on their decisions. Well, at that point, they came up with the excellent idea of making a Treaty of Lisbon, which was basically the European Constitution, minus the flag and the anthem. Now, the Lisbon Treaty, every bit as much as the European Constitution, basically was the end of national sovereignty for all member nations, and many prominent members of European Parliament and other thinkers on European issues recognized it as such. So, for a great collection of information related to the Lisbon Treaty as it stood in early 2008, I would like to recommend listeners go to wiseupjournal.com and look at End of Nations, which was a activist-created documentary featuring interviews with MEPs and other legal experts detailing exactly why the Lisbon Treaty was such a fraud. That was a very well-put-together documentary, and for a long period of time was actually the most viewed video on Google Video. Of course, that was back in the days when Google Video was still on the Google main site and was still actually accepting uploads. Oh, how far we've come. But at any rate, again, I would suggest listeners go and take a look at that End of Nations documentary. And of course, you can find a link to that and all of the documents cited in today's episode— on the documentation tab of today's episode at CorbettReport.com. In order to make the long story short, it turns out that once again, the free people of Europe were able to defeat the encroaching fascist dictatorship of the EU by letting their democratic voice be heard. And this time, it was the people of Ireland who came up with the resounding and categorical no, which if the European Union was following its own laws, should have killed the treaty then and there. Now, of course, the Corbett Report wrote an article about that after the Irish no vote, back on the 18th of June 2008, with the headline, Free Humanity 3, EU Zero. But will the would-be tyrants of Europe play by the rules? Quote, Ireland may only have a population of 4 million, but their relatively small voice was heard around the world as they rejected the Lisbon Treaty last week, declaring a severe blow to the European Empire. Fearing a repeat of the EU Constitution debacle, where the French and Dutch voters trounced the federal superstate by voting against the Constitution, this time around only the citizens of Ireland were given the chance to vote on the Lisbon Treaty, which is just the EU Constitution by another name. As such, Ireland was the only hope for the defeat of this disastrous treaty, and the people of Ireland must be commended for having made the right choice in last week's referendum. Stopping the European Union dead in its tracks on its way to becoming a one-state dictatorship is indeed cause for celebration. The Empire has been dealt a harsh blow. By the European Union's own laws, the treaty has to be ratified by every European country in order to become law. Having been refused by Ireland, The treaty should now legally be dead on arrival. But don't expect those who wish to see the end of national sovereignty in Europe to play by the rules. Indeed, it seems that the EU cheerleaders were ready for such an outcome, and are already trying to circumvent this unequivocal rejection. Reports indicate that immediately after rejection of the treaty became apparent, British Prime Minister Gordon Brown phoned French President Nicolas Sarkozy to assure him that the British would proceed with treaty ratification, despite the result. Other governments have vowed to do the same. Also, the EU spinmasters kicked into action as soon as the result was finalized. A recent report from the Irish Independent reveals that the European Commission began a survey as soon as the results became apparent, dissecting the no-vote to find reasons for the failure. Predictably, the press have already lapped up the survey results to create spin about an uninformed public stupidly going against their own interests in voting to protect their national sovereignty." And, of course, at the time there was much public display of hand-wringing over the entire European enterprise. Just how would the European bureaucrats and technocrats react to this new rejection, by the European voters, of their plans to create an EU federal super-state.
1: Europe's foreign ministers on Monday met in Luxembourg to discuss the biggest challenge that the EU faces in its 51-year history. French okay. President Nicolas Sarkozy has called the Irish rejection of the Lisbon Treaty an incident. But at this meeting in Luxembourg, it is clear that the incident has become a crisis. Commission Vice President Margot Wallström made a rare appearance among the foreign ministers to underline the difficult situation in which the EU now finds itself.
2: Let's uh, have our say also from from those who actually want a new treaty and the problems have not gone away. The problems that, that caused the European Union to invest in a new treaty or discuss a new treaty, they are still there.
1: The British Parliament is due to discuss ratification of the Lisbon Treaty this week. Foreign Minister David Miliband is not sure if the treaty is still alive.
2: The treaty is absolutely clear that it needs the support of 27 countries for it to come into law. That's written in clear black and white and so the uh, fears that you describe I think can be uh, allayed. I'm absolutely clear that it's important that we do respect the position of the Irish government and the Irish people, that we ensure that we give them space to come to terms with their next steps. And I think that to stand up for the right of the British Parliament to take a view on a big issue is the absolutely basic democratic right of a British representative.
1: In Strasbourg, the President of the European Parliament said the EU now faces one of the biggest challenges ever. One idea being floated again is that of a two-speed Europe, with EU leadership taken by a core group of countries that have no reservations about the European project. On Friday, the EU's government leaders will seek a way out of the impasse during their quarterly summit meeting in Brussels.
0: Now for all of those fretting and biting their nails at home, wondering if the EU bureaucrats and technocrats did manage to resolve that impasse and decide what to do, given that the Irish had unequivocally said no in a democratic referendum to the treaty. Oh, don't worry, they managed to resolve that impasse by... Getting Ireland to vote again on the exact same Lisbon Treaty. That's right, the Irish didn't vote the right way, so they will vote again, and likely again, and again, and again, until they get it right. Which is to say, until they accept the Lisbon Treaty. Now, of course, this is just such a ridiculous state of affairs that it's almost impossible to put into words. But suffice it to say, on October 2nd, 2009, the Irish will be once again going back to the polls to vote on the exact same treaty. Word for word, comma for comma, apostrophe for apostrophe, not one jot, dot, or crossed T will be changed. It is the same Lisbon treaty. But they will be voting on it once again because, of course, the EU technocrats and bureaucrats didn't like the way they voted the first time. Now, let's take a moment to step back and look at the Lisbon Treaty in some more detail. For those of you who may be new to the Corbett Report and new to the ideas presented in this podcast, perhaps you need some information to fill in exactly why is the Lisbon Treaty something that is to be mocked, derided, and rejected by the free peoples of europe well in order to break that down let's take a look at an article by anthony Cocklin, senior lecturer emeritus at trinity college dublin and the founder of the national platform eu research and information center at nationalplatform.org and he put together and compiled a document that was drafted and overseen by legal experts that details 13 facts about the Lisbon Treaty. And this article is so important that not only, of course, is it available at nationalplatform.org and many other sites around the web, but I have taken the liberty of hosting a copy of that article up on corbettreport.com. So if you go to the articles section of corbettreport.com, you'll be able to find this article under the headline 13 Facts About the Lisbon Treaty. Let's just go through some of the point-form facts about the Lisbon Treaty, as denoted in this article. 1. The Lisbon Treaty would be a power grab by the big states for control of the EU by basing EU lawmaking post-Lisbon primarily on population size. 2. The Lisbon Treaty would copper fasten the Laval and related judgments of the EU Court of Justice. Three, the Lisbon Treaty would permit the post-Lisbon EU to impose Europe-wide taxes directly on us for the first time without need of further treaties or referendums. Four, the Lisbon Treaty would amend the existing treaties to give the EU exclusive power as regards rules on foreign direct investment and give the Court of Justice the power to order the harmonization of national indirect taxes. Five, the Lisbon Treaty would abolish our present right to propose and decide who Ireland's commissioner is by replacing it with a right to make suggestions only, leaving it up to the incoming commission president to decide. Six, the Lisbon Treaty would give the European Union the constitution of an EU federal state which would have primacy over the Irish and other national constitutions. 7. The Lisbon Treaty would turn us into real citizens for the first time of this new post-Lisbon European Union, owing obedience to its laws and loyal to its authority. 8. The Lisbon Treaty would give the EU Court of Justice the power to decide our rights as EU citizens by making the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights legally binding for the first time. 9. The Lisbon Treaty would abolish the national veto Ireland has at present by handing over to the EU the power to make laws binding on us in 32 new policy areas. 10. The Lisbon Treaty would reduce the power of national parliaments to make laws in relation to 49 policy areas or matters, and increase the influence of the European Parliament in making EU laws in 19 new areas. Eleven, the Lisbon Treaty would be a self-amending treaty. Twelve, the Lisbon Treaty would enable the 27 EU Prime Ministers to appoint an EU President for up to five years without allowing voters any say as to who he or she would be. Thirteen, the Lisbon Treaty would militarize the EU further. As I say, those are just the bullet points explaining the 13 facts about the Lisbon Treaty outlined by Anthony Coughlin and his team of legal experts in that document. So in order to get the entire 13 facts and all of the fleshing out and other information about the Lisbon Treaty, I would highly suggest that you get that article out to yourself and everyone else you know who might be interested in the Lisbon Treaty. But in order to find out more about this go-around with the Lisbon Treaty, the encroaching EU fascist dictatorship, and what it all means for the people of Europe, I had the honor of talking to Anthony Coughlin earlier this week. Professor Coughlin and I had a very interesting interview, which I would suggest you go and listen to in its entirety from the interviews tab of the Corbett Report website, corbettreport.com. But right now, let's take a listen to the beginning of my interview with Anthony Coughlin, Senior Lecturer Emeritus at Trinity College Dublin and head of the national platform EU Research and Information Centre. Well, Mr. Coughlin, you have uh, long been a campaigner on behalf of Irish sovereignty in the uh, case of an increasingly federalist European Union, and you've been called the intellectual backbone for the alternative position on the European Union, Tell us about how and when you first became interested in the issue of Ireland's position in the European Union and why this is such an important issue.
3: Well, years ago, I read the memoirs of the famous Jean Monnet, who had a key role in establishing the original European Community way back 50 years ago, and it was clear for me from that that the continental EU powers, particularly Germany, France, and Benelux, wanted to push um, Europe or Western Europe at that time towards some kind of federation under the political hegemony of Germany and France, or France and Germany. And uh, I really was against that from the beginning on democratic grounds. I'm in favor of um, European free trade and uh, economic cooperation, of course. But the attempt to establish some kind of European superpower under Franco-German hegemony or leadership uh, to contest uh, world politics with America and China and Russia and Japan and so on seems to be quite wrong-headed and certainly not something which a small country with a long and honorable tradition of uh, democracy and independence like Ireland should commit itself to and that's what's involved in these European
0: referendums and it's particularly involved in the second Lisbon referendum that's coming up here in a few weeks time. Well, uh, as you say, the issue before the Irish people at the moment and the one that's currently preoccupying those of all political stripes is, of course, the Treaty of Lisbon. Now, you have written or compiled some key explanatory documents about this treaty and what it will do, and those documents are currently hosted on CorbettReport.com and can also be accessed from NationalPlatform.org. But for the benefit of listeners who have not read widely on this issue, can you, in summation, explain the significance of this treaty and why you're opposed to it? Well, the Lisbon Treaty is a revamped version of the Constitution for Europe,
3: uh, which was drafted about four years ago and which was rejected in referendums by the French and Dutch peoples in 2005. Now, when uh, that treaty was rejected, the EU prime ministers and presidents who are pushing this thing, and particularly the French and German ones and the Benelux uh, countries, they revamped the Constitution and presented it in the form of the Treaty of Lisbon. And this treaty, in a sense, essentially gives the 27 member states of the European Union and now including many East European and Central European countries the constitutional form of a federation rather like the United States of America in fact except that of course the United States of America is a democracy with one people speaking one language more or less but in Europe you have many different people many different cultures many different languages and there is no European people as such so what the European uh, the Lisbon Treaty does is to uh, turn the EU into a kind of state with its own constitution which is superior would be superior in all the areas covered by the treaties to the uh, constitutions of the member states, if we confer an additional citizenship citizenship of the European Union uh, on uh, the citizens of the twenty seven member states and the rights and duties attaching to that citizenship would be superior to the rights and duties attaching to their uh, national citizenships. Uh, and um, so, in a sense, that's a classical federal constitution where you know you're you're a citizen of two levels of government: the federal level in Brussels and the local level in Germany, France, Ireland, Britain, or whatever. And then that's that's on the constitutional side, the most important thing which Lisbon would do. It it, it would establish a kind of European federation, which would, in effect, have all the powers of a state, and virtually all the powers of a a traditional state, and uh, this new EU federation would then sign treaties with other states in all areas of its powers, and would have its own voice in the United Nations, and its own foreign minister, and its own diplomatic service, and so on. And then the second major thing which the Lisbon Treaty would do is that it would change the mode of making European laws quite significantly by giving... giving much more power to the big states. Uh, at present, uh, the big states have something like four times the number of votes which Ireland has in, in making EU laws. The Germany, France, Britain, Italy have 29 votes each, and we have seven. So they have four, four four times ours. But if Lisbon goes through, the whole thing is put on a population basis, and Germany, with its 80 million people, are 20 times Ireland's vote, We really have only 4 million. Britain, France, and Italy, with their average 60 million people each, would have 15 times Ireland's vote. And our actual voting weight, compared to the others, uh, would fall from its current. 2% of the total votes to less than 1%. So in effect, Uh, this uh, would be a kind of power grab by the big European states to have political control of this new uh, supernatural European Union. And it would do many other things, but those are the two most important things it would do. And it it raises, of course, fundamental questions of democracy, independence, the ability of countries to have a say in their own uh, laws, and so on. Because, of course, uh, I don't know if your listeners appreciate, but in the 27 countries of the European Union at present, half or more of the laws each year now come from the European Institutions institutions in Brussels. And only half uh, come from their own national parliaments uh, and the citizens who elect those parliaments. So there's a fundamental problem of democracy involved.
0: So we see that the European Union is already gradually assuming more and more powers. And in effect, what you're saying is that if uh, people vote yes to the Lisbon Treaty, then they will, in effect, be voting away their own national sovereignty.
3: Uh, Yes, indeed. Um, uh, And the remarkable thing is that that Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, is the only Europe, one of the 27 EU countries that's allowed to have a referendum on it uh, in the original EU constitution we started this whole process off I mentioned that the French and Dutch had referendums and they turned down the constitution and then the uh, President Sarkozy of France said oh we can't put this to referendums again because it will be rejected in other countries so the heads of state and government agreed among themselves on no account to have referendums so they're ratifying right this treaty by majority vote in the national parliaments and there's a, a where, where people are much more inclined to go along with this than among the citizens, but they can't deny a referendum in the Republic of Ireland because of the character of our constitution and the fact that there was a particular court case 20 years ago, the Crotty case, which I was uh, myself partly responsible for, may I say, uh, whereby, uh, as a result of which the Irish Supreme Court laid down that any surrender of sovereignty by the Irish state to the European institutions must be done by the people who possess sovereignty, which is the Irish people, and that's why the Irish people have to be asked. Well, we, in fact, did have this referendum last year. We had a referendum of the Lisbon Treaty. We rejected it by 30 54 votes to 47, a majority of 67%, and exactly the same Lisbon uh, Treaty is now being presented to us again uh, with, um, in order to get a different result, because the result was last time around was not regarded as the right result by the powers that be in Europe, and, and by some of our own political elites.
0: Well, that's right, but the yes side is now proclaiming that they have won certain concessions about the, uh, the treaty that uh, guarantee Ireland's national sovereignty. What can you say about that uh, new proclamation? Well, this claim is quite spurious, not a or comma of the treaty has been
3: changed. Not a, not not a, nothing has been changed in the treaty because if it had been, uh, in order to take Ireland's concerns into account, it would have to be, it would be a new treaty in effect and would have to go around for ratification by all 26 states again. So what uh, the Irish government and the other prime ministers and presidents have said is that we understand that uh, the treaty is to be, uh, mean such and such in certain areas which were quite uh, sensitive last time around. and were much discussed last time around, but this doesn't actually change the treaty. The treaty means exactly exactly the same. Indeed, what the prime ministers and presidents said is that their statement clarifies but does not change either the content of the application of the Treaty of Lisbon. So exactly the same treaty is being uh, put forward uh, as last time round. Uh, Any interpretation supposed to be put upon it by the current lot of prime ministers and presidents would have no bearing whatever on the judgments of the European Court of Justice in years and decades to come, which is the only body competent under the treaties to interpret them, because these European treaties are interpreted by the european supreme court which is in effect the eu court of justice and so this is just a political statement uh, that uh, all your concerns have been taken into account uh, we, we, we think that uh, your, your concerns last year some of them were were um, mistaken or irrelevant uh, and and therefore have another go at vote, voting on the treaty but it's exactly the same treaty otherwise it would have to go around for ratification all over the place again
0: anthony Cocklin of nationalplatform.org And as Professor Coughlin pointed out in that interview, of course, what is extremely important about this is the incredible lengths to which the yes side is going to try to convince the people of Ireland that the treaty has somehow been changed or altered in order to protect the Irish national sovereignty and Irish interests. Of course, as Professor Coughlin points out, that's a bunch of bunkum and propaganda Because, of course, if anything had actually changed in the Lisbon Treaty, it would, by definition, be a different treaty and would require re-ratification by all EU member states. That is, of course, not the case, because not one word, dot, sentence, comma, period, or exclamation point has been changed in the document. It is 100% the same treaty that Ireland has already democratically rejected. Of course the only cure for this type of propaganda and misinformation is to provide people with real information because once again forewarned is forearmed and knowledge is power and in this case the Irish people's political knowledge is their power with which they can bring down the EU juggernaut. Once again this small island nation is becoming an extremely important piece of the European puzzle and they really do have the power to change the course of European history this October. That's why for all people all around the world who are interested in freedom, peaceful coexistence and trading, yes, but globalization based on corporatocracy, no. Undemocratic rule, no. Fascist dictatorship, no. No. Federal superstates, which represent an increasing centralization of power in the hands of a select and non elected few, no. Well, in order to con- counteract that, in order to bring down that system, we must help the Irish people to discover the truth about Lisbon. This is something that people all around the world should be interested in. And there is a project with which anyone in the world can contribute in some way. In order to find out more about that, I'd like to turn to another interview that I conducted this week with Simon Murphy and Paul Flynn of truthcoalitionireland.org and sovereignindependent.org. The Sovereign Independent is the name of a 16-page newspaper which Truth Coalition Ireland has put together exposing the truth about the Lisbon Treaty and exactly why it is detrimental to Europe and indeed the world. This is indeed an exciting project, so to hear more about it, let's listen to Simon Murphy and Paul Flynn of truthcoalitionireland.org and sovereignindependent.org. So we've touched on this before, but let's go into some more detail. Other than maintaining your websites, what are you guys doing to, to get the word out uh, to the people of Ireland, and how can people help you?
4: Okay, uh, this time around, we've, um, we're have actually we're putting out uh, flyers as normal. We're putting out about 80,000 flyers. And our main project this time around is the Sovereign Independent. And um, so far, we've received donations from people all over Europe that you know, this gives them a chance to, you know, have their say on the Lisbon Treaty. And what we're doing is really putting together an amazing newspaper with proper information that the, you know, that the mainstream media refuse to publish and refuse to show to the people. Um, so far, we have funding for about 250,000 copies, which is quite substantial in a country of 4 million people. And, um, we're, you know, we're going to distribute them to all the towns and all the cities around Ireland. Um, we have information regarding, um, you know, the Lisbon Treaty, but also, you know, um, like fluoride in the water, the militarisation of the EU, um, the loss of, you know, fishing revenues. There's a, you know, a shelter fee issue, which is a, a major problem um, here. And, um, you know, we're also putting on uh, an event with um, Anthony Coughlin. And, uh, Scott Tips, who actually, um, is, uh, you know, he's the world's expert on Codex Alimentarius, which I'm sure you know. And, um, you know, Codex coming in, 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 December. And what we're doing is getting all the health shops and chemists to come out to that event, which we're going to use as a fundraiser and all money raised. will go into the paper and hopefully we can get a, a second run of the paper printed and put out more copies. And, um, You know, we're going to make it available online so people can print their own copies. But this is, you know, this is going to be a 16-page paper that will really explain exactly what, you know, the Lisbon Treaty will mean to the country about our constitution and about a number of main issues, you know, around around Ireland.
0: Well that's extremely exciting and uh, I certainly hope my listeners will help support uh, support what you guys are doing at sovereignindependent.org and org. So are, do you have any final thoughts on the Lisbon Treaty the EU or or the process of globalization in general?
5: Um I just hope with the newspaper like we're not telling people how to vote with the newspaper we're just giving people information here's things w- which um Andy Kaufman and uh, his team of lawyers have looked over check what will this change here is some information, here is what the, the, um, the government should be doing, giving you unbiased information, not telling you how to vote uh, we just hope, and another thing too yes, this vote is hugely important, but it has to be seen as a start of something if, you know, hopefully, and I pray to God that we can open up people's eyes to see the agenda that's going on around us like, you know like um, Simon's mentioned a couple of issues there that's hugely important and people need to check out. They need to start reading. They need to turn off their televisions and they need to do it now because, I mean, otherwise be, the future is
4: unthinkable. If we do nothing, the future is going to be bleak. It's, um, it's, it's also interesting noting that uh, none of our politicians have actually read the Lisbon Treaty and actually admitted it on mainstream media and on the TV. Um, and yes they want people to vote for something they haven't read so therefore don't understand now you know there's been a lot of work done into kind of unraveling the lisbon treaty as we said it you know the french and dutch rejected it and it was rewritten um, you know only a couple of percent of the actual treaty was changed before it was put in front of the irish but it was written in a way that you know you'd have to be a legal expert which thank god we have and has deciphered it um, explains it to the people in plain English. Um, but, you know, the fact that they haven't read us, but yes, they want us to vote it in, um, Is you know, it's a real telltale sign of uh, corruption and power. And I think a lot of them generally believe in it, and I they
5: think they've kind of, you know, a lot of them dedicate their lives, and they put so much time into this, and they believe a lot of them think they're doing the right thing for the country, and few of them might think they're right. But the fact of the matter is, people have got to show them, and they've got to show them right now that, what they're doing is wrong, and you know, we've seen throughout history people who believe they're doing the right thing and they're not listening to the will of the people, it never ends pretty. And just if we have an educated population, that's all I hope for, we will defeat this. But you know it's, it's like you know the and I have to say to people too who've got involved in the paper, thank you if anybody's listening right now, because there's been such an amazing response the amount of articles have come in um, the money do donated already um, I think it's like something like two hundred and fifty thousand copies yeah, ready to print yeah. in the next week or two um, it's fantastic and I, I you know I hope we can keep that momentum going It's an exciting time at the same time it's daunting, but it's also exciting and I think you have to, you know, obviously take a bit of hope because otherwise, you know, you need to keep, you know, give yourself a pan of back sometimes, you know, that way you don't, because when you're, when you're up against, you know, people like the Bilderberg Group and they're sending groups to Ireland, you know, to pressure for a yes vote, you realize how much it's up the, uh, the Bilderberg agenda even. Uh, you know, this is such an important vote, um, not just for Europe even, for, you know, if we can stop the world government here, It'll, it'll be amazing, but we have to keep going after that, even within a vote.
0: That's absolutely right. Well, if uh, the ignorance of the masses is the enemy, then the I guess the, the cure is uh, getting the education out to the people, and you guys are definitely doing that, so uh, my hats are off to you. Uh, why don't you throw, off, throw out the websites one more time for the listeners?
4: Sure. It's uh, sovereignindependence.org and org. And you know any any donations, like um, you know, the smallest donation will make uh, you know an amazing difference, James. Every every euro, every dollar, every you know every cent we receive. No donation is too small or too big, but, you know, absolutely, you know, every penny. And we must stress, every single donation or penny we receive goes straight into papers. Um, You know, we're all working for free. We're all putting our own, you know, hard-earned cash into this paper. We've all donated hundreds ourselves. And, you know, family and friends have donated money, like people that actually really believe in this and, you know, know that this will make a difference. And the people that are writing for the paper are, you know, all sorts of groups, you know, from all over Ireland. They, you know, they deal every day with all sorts of issues like the anti-war movement and, you know, the Shell to see And we've got doctors from, you know, our, you know, some of our colleges writing for the paper. You know, with real good information about swine flu, about vaccinations, about you know every single major issue that we need to tell and explain to the people what's going on. So you know, any help that can come from anywhere is really, really much appreciated. Yeah, that can't be emphasized enough. As well,
5: there's experts on this, Anthony Cocklin. You couldn't get a better man to speak on the Lisbon Treaty. Um, he's been he's been you know speaking out against European Union project since about '73, and he you know he knows. So, you know, all the trees inside out um, and who, you know, like there's so many people on this paper, it's hard to, you know, it's like Scott Tips, for example, like, you know, these people are experts in their field and I, I truly believe we can get this out of the people into our hands because not, not everybody's going to be able to go online and not everybody's going to look at a website and you see the thing is when they get in their hands, they might take it more seriously. Sometimes if you see something online, it seems very unbelievable. And you might see something on YouTube and say, that couldn't be right. But if you see in the paper, you see these experts talking about it, I think we can make a massive difference with this paper.
0: I certainly hope that my listeners will go to truthcoalitionireland.org and sovereignindependent.org in order to find out more about the Sovereign Independent newspaper and potentially to help support Simon and Paul and all the others involved in this to try to get the word out to the people of Ireland. Now, it has been confirmed that they do have a first run of 250,000 copies of this newspaper, and they will be distributing them through their army of volunteers working the streets of Ireland. 250,000 papers in a country of 4 million people is incredibly significant, but of course, we can always do with more. That's why I'm encouraging my listeners to help support the Sovereign Independent by going to SovereignIndependent.org and donating your time, if you are in Ireland, or your resources, if you're not, in order to help spread this valuable information to others. Now, of course, at SovereignIndependent.org, you can also download a PDF copy of the newspaper, so you could even print up your own, in order to help inform others in your area about some of the key issues. This is an extremely important and extremely enlightening newspaper with lots of key quotes and key articles written by people like Anthony Cocklin, who know what they're talking about. As an example of some of the quotations from Valerie Giscard d'Estaing, the man who spearheaded the Treaty on the Constitution of the European Union and who also headed the committee to draft the Lisbon Treaty, which of course was the EU constitution in all but name, and he said regarding the Lisbon Treaty, quote, public opinion will be led to adopt, without knowing it, the proposals that we dare not present to them directly. All the earlier proposals will be in the new text, but will be hidden and disguised in some way. What was already difficult to understand will become utterly incomprehensible, but the substance has been retained." Quote. Again, this newspaper is full of incredible information so it's important to help get this out to the people of Ireland now while Ireland might be the last best democratic hope for stopping this draconian treaty in its tracks there are other signs of possible breakthroughs and one in fact that comes from OneWorldScam.com from August 27, 2009 German court ruling calls into question the entire European project post-Lisbon. Quote, a recent landmark legal ruling in Germany has sent the EU integration project into complete disarray. The German constitutional court examined the Lisbon Treaty, the successor to the infamous EU constitution, and ruled the sovereignty of a member state, in this case Germany, must always take precedence over diktats from Brussels. The Constitutional Court in Karlsruhe effectively declared itself the highest supervisory body in conflicts between Germany and the EU, thus explicitly placing itself above the authority of the European Court of Justice. As Der Spiegel reported, this borders on a declaration of war on the European Court, which sees itself as the only authority capable of ruling on the validity and applicability of EU law. The German judges went further by ruling the German parliament had been wrong in passing an accompanying law to the Lisbon Lisbon Treaty, which determined the rights of the German parliament to participate in European legislation. By passing the right to monitor the implementation of EU laws to Brussels, the Bundestag was acting unconstitutionally, said the judges, and subjecting people to the whims of a bureaucracy that lacks sufficient democratic legitimacy. End quote. I suggest that you go and read that article for yourself and cogitate on the significance of this. It seems, in fact, that there are clear judicial challenges to the legality of the Lisbon Treaty and very real legal rulings in Germany that are calling the Lisbon Treaty into question. This, of course, is a very encouraging sign and one that must be followed closely. And again, I would suggest that people in Europe and in a position to do so get the word out about this story. People understand that this globalization process that the EU technocrats are so intent on is by no means unstoppable. Indeed, if there is any key today, it is simply that. That action is required on the part of not just the people of Ireland, or even just the people of Europe, but the freedom-loving people all around the world, in order to stop the EU juggernaut, which, as we know, is a model for those proponents of globalization all around the world who are seeking to accomplish the very same things in North America, South America, Africa, Asia, etc. with, of course, the end goal of bringing the entire world under the dictates of regional governments which, of course, could then be easily be grouped into undemocratic, unelected bodies like the WTO for implementation of plans like Codex Alimentarius The diabolical nature of this vast centralization of power and the ceding of power to unelected officials in faraway countries cannot be overestimated. This is an incredible problem facing humanity itself and many people are simply even unaware that this is going on. Of course, we must combat this in any way we can no matter where we live or what nationality we are. In that spirit, I'd like to end today with the combative words of Nigel Farage, the head of the United Kingdom Independence Party and a member of European Parliament for Southeast England, who is vociferously opposed to the European enterprise. He is an eloquent speaker, and I would suggest that people type Nigel Farage into YouTube to find some more excellent examples of his very articulate way of cutting down the European bureaucrats. Knowledge is power, and together, armed with the knowledge of what the Lisbon Treaty really is, and also armed with our knowledge of history, we can stop the Lisbon Treaty. That's all for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me for another episode of The Corbett Report, and asking you to join me again next week for episode 97 of The Corbett Report podcast, 9 the bigger bigger picture
2: president i would like to congratulate you on being elected although i feel that this morning it's been more like a papal inauguration and it's rather a shame that this parliament if it was a proper parliament would actually select members to sit in the chair on ability and not have the usual big group stitch-up. So that's rather a shame. And I think the signs for change here aren't very good. Just yesterday we had Euro Corps, armed Euro Corps soldiers, carrying the European flag around the courtyard outside, a sort of European Union version of Trooping the Colour. We had an orchestra, we had the anthem, we had a choir. We started today, didn't we, with the anthem. This is the same flag and anthem that you said had been dropped after the French and Dutch very sensibly said no to the dreaded EU constitution. You're not even pretending anymore. You're pushing ahead with all the symbols of statehood and trying at the same time to lie and cheat with the Irish by giving them a series of guarantees that are not worth the paper that they are written on. Well, I can tell you that many of us in this Europe of Freedom and Democracy group will do all we can to help the no-side in that Irish referendum. The future of European democracy rests very heavily on Irish shoulders. You fought, Mr President, against the Soviet Union. You fought for democracy. You fought for national self-determination. If you continue to ignore the democratic voice of countries like France, the Netherlands and Ireland, then you will turn the European Union back into that very Union that you fought so hard against. Listen to the people please. Thank you everybody.
3: Did you ever stop and ask yourself, now you're prosperous and free? Who fought and died to make better life for you and me Through famine, war and plunder Through disease and foreign foe Don't disrespect our memory With easy come, so easy go Don't let them take away Your voice, we fought hard to be free Say no to the Lisbon Treaty Let's have true democracy If we don't keep good focus The quiet men will have their way We will
2: erode all of our rights till we don't have a say